all the district department of energy does the purpose of this is to show you how to use your imagination a foundation in science technology engineering and math developing these technologies for science. climate change we're talking about energy big dreams clean energy is way of the future this is direct current Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Direct Current. I'm Matt Dozier. And I'm Allison Lantero. We have a great episode for you today. It's the story of one of the biggest environmental problems of the 20th century and how scientists, policy wonks, and regular people came together to solve it. We're going to find out what happened to acid rain. Here to tell this story and to find out what we can learn from it is producer Pat Adams. It's fall in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. The leaves are changing colors and the water is calm on Big Moose Lake. Covewood Lodge sits right on the edge of it. This place is as quaint and idyllic as you can imagine. There's a bunch of cabins surrounding a main lodge, all of it built out of pine. It's ringed by forest and reflected in the shimmering water. Covewood Lodge draws thousands of visitors per year who boat and fish or just enjoy the peace and quiet of nature. But there's something here that visitors can't see. An invisible menace. Acid rain. That was from an old National Geographic documentary. It was released at a time when acid rain was on the nightly news and debated on Capitol Hill. You don't hear much about it anymore, though, so what happened to acid rain? To try and understand, I got in touch with someone who remembers it all too well. This is Diane Bowes. I'm an owner of Covewood Lodge up in Big Moose Lake in the Adirondacks, and I've been here for 50-some years. Diane spoke to me from the top floor of the main lodge right on the edge of the lake. I live at treetop level. Oh, I look right out on it. And even though it's raining at the moment, (laughs) it's a beautiful view. So my favorite thing is to get up early in the morning and go out and take a row in my skull. The Adirondacks were considered ground zero for acid rain, And people like Diane and her family were among the first to feel its effects, although they didn't realize it at first. We have a wonderful old hotel that was built between 1925 and 28. has all copper pipes and, of course, solder. You know, we started getting these little pinholes through the copper pipes. You know, that was annoying and a problem, but we didn't think much about it. Until it became personal. The spring-fed water system thing, it was wonderful. Pure, clear water. Delicious tasting. You know, I can remember one of the girls saying, you know, it tastes funny. And then one daughter started having stomach problems. When doctors conducted blood tests, it turned out Diane's daughter actually had lead in her system. It must have obviously come from the solder in the pipes. So then we started sort of putting two and two, and they started testing the acidity of our spring water. And the spring was very acid. How did this beautiful spring become so acid? And so then they started testing and found that, of course, the lake was very acid. And then it went from there. All right, this beautiful lake and crystal spring in the Adirondacks are becoming so acidic that pipes are eroding and the lead in the solder that holds them together is dissolving into drinking water. Not good. You already know why this is happening. It's acid rain. But what is it exactly? To help me understand these impacts better, I called the person who first taught me about acid rain, my sixth grade science teacher, Mr. R. 
Hi, you have reached Melanie and Tom Robinson. We are not able to take your call right now. Please leave us a message. He was busy with his grandkids that day, but I eventually got a hold of him. My name is Tom Robinson, and I was a school teacher for 39 years. Mr. R, can you explain what's going on chemistry-wise with acid rain? How acidic are we talking? The, the pH scale, I think, goes up to 14, so normal or neutral is about 7. You know, normal rain is like you know, 5 to 6. You know, your, your very acidic levels are down where you get lemon juice and vinegar. I think that's down to 2 or 3. And then you get up into the base, which is ammonia and lye, and then it goes up in the 13 to 14. But between 3 and 5, you know, that's what I found with the, uh, you know, with the lakes up in the, the Adirondacks. You know, you're getting that almost the acidic level of vinegar. Imagine being a fish in that lake. And kids understand it because, you know, you're getting the lemon juice and they're always, you know, piercing their lips. You know, they well, that's very acidic. So then, you know, around that level, when it gets in three or four, then you have your fish die in these lakes up there. Not to mention causing lead poisoning in children like Diane's, harming forests, and eating away at stone, metal, and paint. It was starting to affect the forest. That took a long time to become, you know, evident. For instance, the acid rain weakened some of the trees, especially the spruce trees. So at one point, we had lost a whole lot of our mature spruce trees. Same thing happened with beech trees. Okay, but how did the rain turn into acid? Understanding acid rain begins with understanding one of America's oldest sources of energy generation, coal-fired power plants. You have the sulfur in the coal, and combustion is burning uh, the coal in air. In air is about three-quarters nitrogen and about a quarter oxygen. That's Tom Sarkis. He's a researcher at the Energy Department's National Energy Technology Laboratory, which is two main sites in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Morgantown, West Virginia, coal country. The sulfur in the coal combines with the oxygen to form SO2. SO2 is sulfur dioxide. It's a gas that comes out of the smokestack. Then it gets in the clouds, where it reacts with water vapor to form sulfuric acid. And you have a, a similar reaction happening with the uh, NOx. NOx is scientific shorthand for a family of compounds called nitrous oxides. Those are other gases that are produced by burning coal. comes out the chimney also, but instead of forming sulfuric acid, it forms uh, nitric acid. Okay, so burning coal creates these two gases, which hitch a ride on some clouds as they blow east. And these gases turn into sulfuric and nitric acid and then fall as rain. There's even acid snow and acid sleet. In any case, it eventually ends up in the water supply in places like the Adirondacks. But it had to really start in the Adirondacks because we were the ones who were first impacted. Then it became known that it was also impacting, you know, not just the Adirondacks, and not just New York State, but it was even spreading across into New England as well. Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner will return after In the News and these messages. In the News, lakes without life. New York's Big Moose Lake is one of hundreds of lakes that are dead or dying. Fish and plant life are being killed off by contaminated rain. We'll be back with Acid Rain in the News. By the 1980s, policymakers started to recognize that acid rain was a serious problem, affecting not just Big Moose Lake, but huge swaths of the eastern United States. There were hearings on Capitol Hill to debate what to do. 
Diane's husband, C.V. Bose Jr., came down to Washington, D.C. to testify. Meanwhile, Tom Sarkis and his colleagues were already trying to come up with solutions through their work at the National Energy Technology Laboratory, or NETL. It's one of the Department of Energy's 17 national laboratories. We focus on uh, taking fossil energy and making clean energy from that. Fossil energy comes from the ground. It's coal, oil, and natural gas. And NETL is one of the world's leading centers of research into these energy sources and how to make them cleaner. We conducted a lot of the research in parallel with uh, several years of congressional debates, and we decided to develop a portfolio of technologies that could be applied at power plants of different designs and different configurations. It was quite a comprehensive effort. It was uh, called the Acid Rain Control R&D Program. And, you know, we tried to uh, study the problem. NETL's solutions to stop acid rain fit into two main categories. You have scrubbers, which attach to a smokestack and essentially clean sulfur dioxide from the exhaust. And you have measures for when the fuel is being burned that limit the amount of NOx produced in the first place. Probably in the 1984, 1985, 1986 time frame, we, we had a number of technologies ready to go. And those technologies were effective. In some cases, they could capture up to 90% of the pollutants causing acid rain. But of course, they weren't free. Power plant owners weren't going to just install a costly scrubber out of the goodness of their hearts. There needed to be an economic reason for them to cut down on these pollutants. <laughs> Every American expects and deserves to, to breathe clean air. And as president, it is my mission to guarantee it uh, for this generation and for generations to come. Well, as we used to say in the Navy, mission defined, mission accomplished. And today I am very proud uh, on behalf of everyone here to sign this uh, Clean Air Bill, Clean Air Act of 1990. This landmark legislation will reduce air pollution each year by 56 billion pounds. That's 224 pounds for every man, woman, and child in America. And it'll go after the three main types of air pollution, acid rain, smog, and uh, toxic air pollutants. This bill will cut emissions that cause acid rain in half and permanently cap them at these new levels. The amendments to the Clean Air Act established a cap-and-trade system for the chemicals that cause acid rain. It's a market-based approach which lets each power plant decide how to comply, and it provides a financial incentive to lower your emissions. It's still in effect today. The law was passed in 1990. It set some, a level of reductions um, that would kick in in 1995. Certainly, you know, we were demonstrating technologies in the early 1990s, even before the 1995 date kicked in. And that's a really important point. Research and development takes years. By the time the law kicked in, technologies were already available, making it a whole lot easier for power companies to comply. NETL and the Department of Energy were ahead of the curve. In the end, the solution worked. By the end of the decade, 80% of coal plants in the country had installed acid rain control devices like scrubbers. Today, we're preventing 15 million tons of sulfur dioxide and 3 to 4 million tons of nitrous oxides every year. It's made a huge difference. We still have our pollution, but pollution is now mostly car pollution. We have different issues, but the pH is, is wonderful. 
The Environmental Protection Agency still monitors acid rain. And if you look at the maps, in 1990, there was a whole lot of red across the eastern United States, indicating urgent levels of acid. Now, most of that has been reduced to acceptable levels, which show up as slightly yellow or green. And I have to say, I give my husband credit people who had the foresight to realize that, you know, this was a future problem, not just an immediate problem, that if it wasn't taken care of now, it would be an even bigger problem in the future. So, we did it. We solved the problem of acid rain using science and policy and the voices of regular people. But in the last couple decades, we've learned a lot about a different problem, one that's also caused by gases in the atmosphere produced by burning fossil fuels. The one that we're working on today is is actually much bigger than acid rain, and that's uh, climate change. Up next, Pat takes a look at one tool, one piece of the puzzle, that can help solve the big, unwieldy problem of climate change. There are a lot of present-day parallels to the acid rain story, so I found an expert to help explain some of them. Hi, my name is Christopher Smith. I'm the Assistant Secretary for Fossil Energy here at the Department of Energy. The Office of Fossil Energy ensures the safety and environmental sustainability of America's coal, oil, and natural gas sources, and aims to reduce the greenhouse gases they produce. Now about 40% of the electricity that we use, that we consume here in the United States, comes from coal. So as we're looking at the, uh, the low carbon sources of the future, we also have to be developing and deploying technologies to deal with uh, the sources that we're using that we're using today. Now, if you care about climate change, I know what you might be thinking, why would we be focusing on coal rather than investing in renewable energy? I asked him that. The mission around new renewables is incredibly important. Innovating new technologies based on wind and solar and hydropower and, and nuclear is going to continue to be important. Now, but at the same time, we have to figure out what to do with the sources of today, uh, significantly because there's there's already such an enormous infrastructure in place and the path to going from what you what exists now to something new is going to be time consuming the reality is that even under the most aggressive climate scenarios we're going to be burning fossil fuels for at least a few more decades according to the energy information administration which is a nonpartisan statistical agency that's a few more decades we have to make those sources cleaner and that's where CCUS comes in. So CCUS stands for Carbon Capture, Utilization, and Storage. And the idea is that instead of taking the CO2 that comes out of the back of these plants and goes up into the environment uh, and impacts us uh, in, in a lot of very negative ways in terms of uh, climate change, you would capture those emissions, uh, compress them, put them in a pipeline, and, uh, and store them underground. Remember NETL, the lab that developed the acid rain scrubbers? It's actually part of the Energy Department's Office of Fossil Energy. Tom Sarkis and his colleagues have been working on this challenge for a while now, and their work on acid rain helped pave the way. You know, we're working quite hard and have a, you know, a moderately robust R&D program on carbon capture and storage technologies. First, we want to capture the CO2 from the power plant, 